0: Good morning. 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 And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for Again, this opportunity to come and study. Thank you for the beauty of your character, the truth that you've revealed, your love for us, what you've achieved for us in Jesus Christ. We ask that you'll join us as we study today, that we can draw closer to you. We ask for your blessings on all those who love this message and are sharing it in their community, that you will empower them and enable them to be effective, to take this final message of mercy to the world, that you might come soon. Pray in your holy name. Amen. Okay, we are doing uh, lesson number 12 in the quarterly on death, dying, the future hope. And the title is a, a biblical, The Biblical Worldview. The Biblical Worldview. When you hear that, what does that mean? The Biblical Worldview. Is the Biblical Worldview better than other worldviews? Yes. <laughs> does, it depend, does it depend on what law model one who holds a biblical worldview has? Yeah. Yeah. Does it depend on what God concept those who hold a biblical worldview have? Yeah. For instance, did those who crucified Christ, demanded that Pilate kill him, would they consider themselves having a biblical worldview?
1: Yes.
0: Yes. yes. Did the Puritans who bur- burned people at the stake that they believed were witches? Did they would they consider themselves as having a biblical worldview? Yes. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you think David Koresh and the Branch Davidians believed that they had a biblical worldview? probably. Yes. Oh, yeah. They were they were really strong on studying the Bible and preaching out of Revelation. Yeah. So is believing in the Bible enough? Or is it possible that people could believe in the Bible, claim they have a biblical worldview, and be God's worst enemies and even crucify the Son of God?
1: Yes. yes, yes.
0: Absolutely. Would you like to have someone like David Korash or Caiaphas both of who would claim that they had biblical worldviews, would you like them to be in charge of your church or perhaps your government? No.
1: No. no.
0: no. <laughs> so is having a, quote, biblical worldview satisfactory or enough? No. Something more is needed than that. Now, now we're not undermining a right biblical worldview. I'm just pointing out that stopping with the idea of biblical worldview, many people have held to the Bible, held up the Bible, promoted the Bible, promoted the doctrines they found in the Bible, and still been God's enemies, haven't they? Yes. Does the Bible say that life eternal is knowing the Bible?
1: No, knowing God is
0: no. No, knowing God. <laughs> no, no it, the Bible says life eternal is knowing God, and Jesus Christ is now sent.
1: The is it possible the to
0: have right Bible doctrines and not know God? The
1: Pharisees did that.
0: The Pharisees did that, yeah. The primary purpose of Scripture is to reveal God to us in the context of the cosmic conflict, the sin problem, and God's solution for it. That's the primary purpose of Scripture, revealing God to us in that context. And Scripture reveals God dealing with the sin problem and thereby reveals God to us that's what it's trying to do so that we can come back into a, a trust relationship with him Tim? so yes
1: so me and Tara were talking in worship this morning that why didn't the the, Jew, the Jews read the Bible they knew all of it better than probably the heathen and why is it that you know we can read the Bible me and her were studying and God is revealing himself to us, but they couldn't do that. Is that is that because of their mindset?
0: So, so you made an assumption about today. You made the assumption, why is it we can read the Bible and God is revealing himself to us? Was God doing something different then than he's doing now for those who read the Bible? No. No. He no. No. doesn't change. Okay, so God's revelation of himself in scripture and his willingness to inspire and enlighten with the Holy Spirit is the same today, is the same then. So the difference isn't in God's willingness or activity in revealing truth. The difference is in the mindset of those who are reading the scripture, the heart attitude of those who are reading the scripture. when people go to scripture, do they go to scripture with an open heart, a humble heart, a willingness to to be instructed by the truth? Or do they go with their preconceived ideas and their biases and an unwillingness to be corrected and instructed? Yeah. The, you know, the, the Greek New Testament has a word that we translate as obey or obedience. And the word obedience in the Greek New Testament is, is a two-part word. The first part, it's it's hu- hypoakue. Now, uh, the first part we get hypo from, like hypoglycemic, hypotensive. Um, it means under or below or humble, actually. And akue, we get acoustical or acoustic. It means listen or hearing. And so biblical obedience, the obedient are those who have a humble, teachable spirit willing to be taught and instructed and learn. Whereas the arrogant or the prideful are are those who know and won't be corrected by truth. And you see this dynamic played out with Jesus and those who he was constantly speaking to and the conflict he had with the religious authorities. Uh Nicodemus eventually became humble and willing to listen, but most of the religious authorities were not. And therefore, they studied the scriptures because in them they thought they had eternal life, but these are they which teach of me, Jesus said. Yeah. And they would not accept that teaching. So they read the scriptures, but they were uh, resistant to the truth that the scriptures brought. And so it really is about the attitude of the heart. Mm-hmm. So biblical worldview means... Understanding a true biblical worldview means understanding the truth about God, God's character, God's design laws and methods, and not falling into the trap of viewing God and the Bible through human law and lenses and methods of imperialism. In fact, I would go as far as to say that those who hold the wrong picture of God and believe that God's law functions like human law, who have presented God as running his universe, like Caesar ran Rome, making up rules and enforcing it with punishments, are actually promoting a non-biblical worldview while they claim they're promoting a biblical worldview. Did y'all follow that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. First paragraph in our lesson states, The book of Revelation speaks of two major globalizations prior to the second coming of Christ. Revelation 13 describes the globalization of error when all the world will marvel and follow the beast from the sea. Revelation 14 highlights the globalization of truth when the everlasting gospel will be preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. During those distressing times, every wind of doctrine will be blowing and the people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. Through the two great errors of immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deception, while the former lays the foundation to spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. How do you and how do you and that, that last portion was a quotation of the book The Great Controversy? How would you describe the globalization of error? Do you feel like the lesson is leading us to believe that the globalization of error will be about the state of the dead in the day of worship? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. what the lessons.: <clears throat> Yeah, if we have the right understanding of the state of the dead and worship on the Bible Sabbath, does that mean then we are protected and will not be drawn into the beastly system and will not use the beastly powers? No. 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 But that's what the lesson is suggesting. Know the right day of worship, practice it, and know about the state of the dead, and you won't be part of the beastly system. That's kind of what they're saying, isn't it? Yeah. Is, is it really about those two doctrines, or do those two doctrines, the ones referenced above there, set people up for the final deception to choose or participate in the practices of the beast? The Arthur quoted said the following, through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring people under his deceptions. So, is the final deception believing these wrong two things, or are these wrong two things the, the foundation for believing the final deceptions? Yes. <laughs> Have you ever heard the idea that Sunday is the mark of the beast?
1: Yes. 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 yes.
0: The same author that was quoted there in the, uh, in the book Great Controversy repeatedly writes that Sunday enforcement is the mark of the beast, not Sunday itself. That same author says there's nothing in the Sabbath commandment that forbids worshiping God on Sunday or doing missionary work on Sunday or requires antagonizing our neighbors by working on Sunday. The issue is about what Sunday and Sabbath represent. They stand as emblems, marks, signs, flags, penance of two systems of governing. The Sabbath became a day set apart from other days by what? By By creation. God created it and God rested from using power. Day one through six of creation week, God used power. Day seven, God rested and ceased using power. And thus, this day was set apart, a day in which God presented truth in love, creating a planet operating on the principles of love, his design laws, and then rested in the context of Lucifer's rebellion, demonstrating that God wins through the methods of truth, love, and freedom, and the Sabbath was built as a sign in time that is there every week as an evidence of his methodologies and how his government works, truth, love, freedom, the design laws of life, rather than coercing and forcing with power all the angels to bow and comply. Thus, the Sabbath is a sign that God is the one who makes us holy because God restores us to trust, love. And restores his law within us. Sunday became a day set apart for worship through legislation. And stands as evidence of a, or a symbol of imperialism, imposed law, external enforcement, inflicted punishments. It is the sign of the methods and practices of Satan in this fallen world. Why? Because created beings cannot create reality. We cannot create the laws of physics or gravity or the laws of health. So created beings who want to counterfeit the government of God make up rules that they call laws and then enforce those rules with punishment. Thus the legislation of Sunday sacredness. Not going to church on Sunday. Be very clear here. The legislation that says Sunday is sacred is an artificial, made-up rule that is symbolic or an evidence of how human governments work, not God's government. It's an imposed law enforced with external punishments, and that's the way the beast works. It's not about what they, someone actually goes to church on. It's about what method they employ and how they govern themselves and others. So when the laws are enforced that coerce the conscience of others, that is evidence of the methods of the beast. Those who believe in their minds that it is right to use law and external force to coerce the conscience of another, that it's righteous to do it. It's right. They mark themselves as beastly in their foreheads. Those who don't think it's right, but go along and use those methods so that they can keep their home, they can keep their government funding, they can keep their travel, uh, their travel privileges and, and their job, mark themselves by their works and their hand to be beastly. So the two days, Sabbath and Sunday, are simply marks or signs like flags. They are not the government any more than the U.S. flag is our government. But they are designed to, uh, but the Sabbath is designed by God to inspire and to remind us of his government and his methods. It's a gift to us. But people can wave a flag of a nation while they work against that nation and people can want to want to keep the Sabbath so much that they want the Lord of the Sabbath off the cross by sunset to keep the Sabbath. You can, you can have the right day of the week but employ the methods of the beast and you demonstrate yourself to be beastly with the right day. Whereas those who reveal the principles of God in their character and how they treat others, truth, love, and freedom, but go to church on Sunday would never coerce anybody demonstrate that they have the seal of God in their heart and mind because they have his law written on their heart and mind. The same author who was quoted above wrote in Review and Herald July 13, 1897 the following: The time has come for the true light to shine amid more the true light to shine among amid moral darkness. The third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against receiving the mark of the beast or have his image in their forehead or in their hands. To receive the mark means to come to the same decision as the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. And what method did the beast come to? God's law works like human law. It's right to make up rules. It's right to punish rule breakers. It's right to burn people at the stake who break our edicts and religious norms and traditions, and laws. It's right to silence people. It's right to take their property. The methods, lies, impose law, coercion, and enforcement. And from that same book, Great Controversy, listen to the following. This is on page 573. If the reader would understand the agencies to be employed in the soon-coming contest, he has but to trace the record of, notice what it says, the record of the means which Rome employed for the same object in ages past. This author is pointing our attention to the methods being employed, not the specific doctrine being supported by the methods. In other words, this author is not pointing primarily to the Sunday. It's pointing to the methods which which the power uses to advance the doctrine. Continue with the quote. If he would know how papists and Protestants united will deal with those who reject their dogmas, Let him see the spirit which Rome manifested towards the Sabbath and its defenders. Again, this author is not focusing simply on the rightness or wrongness of the Sabbath or some specific dogma or doctrine. This author is focusing on the means and the attitudes and the methods being employed. This author goes on in the next several pages to elucidate those means. Let's look at them. This is Great Controversy, page 574. Next page. Royal edicts. General councils and church ordinances sustained by secular power were the steps by which the pagan festival attained its position of honor in the Christian world. If we want to know how this beastly system advances, we should understand the means. What means were used? Well, proclamations, imposed rules, legislation, authority of office, backed by governmental coercive enforcement. This is what we are to be watching for. Romanism is the use of declarations, proclamations, edicts, rules enforced by external punishments to overrule people's consciences on any subject or point of doctrine. We might today call this an executive order.
1: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah
0: have we seen these methods used the last two years around the world yes and did most of christianity identify them as beastly or did millions perhaps billions join with the state in supporting these methods of conscientious coercion coercing other people's consciences yes they thought they were doing right and justice okay that's first description of methods, same page, great controversy, 574, more methods. Listen to the author. The royal mandate, or we might say executive order, since we don't have a king, we have a president, the royal mandate or executive order, not proving a sufficient substitute for divine authority, Eusebius, a bishop who sought the favor of princes and who was a special friend and flatterer of Constantine, advanced the claim that Christ had transferred the Sabbath to Sunday. Not a single testimony of Scripture was produced in proof of the new doctrine. What method? Again, it's actually not about Sabbath or Sunday. We're focusing on the methods employed to advance a falsehood. What method is employed here? Imposed law, mandates, coupled with... Claims, declarations, proclamations without evidence. Have we seen mandates recently that coerced people's consciences? Mandates that lacked evidence to support them and that were advanced through various claims. Did we see that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Notice, Eusebius was a doctoral church historian and theologian Who gave expert opinion? His gave his expert opinion that something was true in spite of providing no evidence. His expert opinion was accepted as authoritative and therefore used to support the edicts that had no basis in reality. He claimed it, declared it, used authority and position of office. Have we seen this in society? Reason some person with a doctoral degree, sitting in position of authority, making proclamations and claims that are actually contrary to science and evidence, but calling it science. (laughs) Have we recognized these movements as the movements of the beast of revelation, or are we so locked into the day of worship only that we cannot recognize the beastly methods that destroy hearts, minds, characters if it's not associated with the day of worship. Here's here's more methods from the same author, same page, Great Controversy 574. Later, it was decreed that rich men should be punished with the loss of half their estates. And finally, that if still obstinate, they should be made slaves. The lower classes were to suffer perpetual banishment. What method here? Have we seen the methods of financial punishment, loss of employment, restrictions on liberty, inability to travel, uh, fines, loss of licensures, and other things for those who didn't want to go along with external mandates on how they should govern their own bodies? Mm, Uh Yes. Do we see it as beastly? And one more method, Great Controversy 575, the next page. Later, the Pope gave directions that the parish priests should admonish the violators of Sunday and wish them to go to church and say their prayers, lest they bring some great calamity on themselves and their neighbors. Wow, wow. Have we seen that the science priests, the science priests and government officials making the argument... That if you don't take a certain action, that you will bring a great calamity on yourselves and your neighbors and your family. Yes. And therefore, to prevent this great calamity, it is righteous and good and just to force people to inject themselves with an experimental toxin. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, 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 Experimental toxin. I love that. With this in mind, with what we've gone through, back to our lesson title. How would you describe the globalization of deception that brings the world, all but the righteous, into the camp of the beast? How would you describe it? Is it about Sunday and State of the Dead? No. The whole world just got seduced into a globalization of the very methods of the beast described here. And did our church stand up and point them out for the world to recognize, or did they actually go along with them?
1: The
0: majority went along. along. Why did they go along? Because they didn't see Sunday involved. Wow. 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 How sad. How totally sad. It's by the advancement of some, quote, just cause through the application of Satan's methods that this globalization of the beastly powers are advanced. And the methods are imposed laws, With mandates that coerce conscience, claims, proclamations, declaration without evidence and without truth. In other words, propaganda and misinformation and deceit. Silencing, censoring, vilifying, accusing those who actually are interested in pursuing the evidence and the truth. Accusations against those who resist the mandates and want to maintain sovereignty over their spirit temple. Use of coercive pressures, fines, loss of property, loss of jobs, loss of positions, and imprisonment. And the Bible says eventually when this beastly system comes back around, eventual death penalty. Are we seeing the globalization of such methods and principles right now in the era in which we live? Yes. (laughs) Not just from governments, but are you seeing it in the community of people, in your own churches, church family members, people who claim to be members of your church, willing to use these methods on their neighbors? Consider the warning from the same author written over 100 years ago, Great Controversy 573. In the movements now in progress in the United States, to secure for the institutions and usages of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following the steps of the papists. What is the the, uh, movements? What What are the steps? Doing whatever is necessary to have the state support your organization. In other words enforcing mandates of certain behaviors so you don't lose your government funding. Uh, We'll we'll move off this. Okay, do we see, I just want you to see the methods. I want you to see the subtle, I want you to see what's happened. Because uh, these methods are about the methods, not the specific doctrine to which they're applied. Do we see the call the three angels message being globalized, which the lesson references. A global message of truth, of the eternal gospel, the good news about God that has always been true and will always be true, that God is the creator whose laws are design laws and God is not an imperial dictator whose laws are imposed and, and who is the source of inflicted punishment and death. Do we recognize and respond to the call to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, to see? And that requires us to recognize his laws as the design laws that life were built upon. Do we respond to the call to leave Babylon, that fallen system of imposed laws with imposed punishments, and stop giving our support to organizations that coerce their own members conscience consciences do do we are are we presenting the truth that God is love while leaving other people free? Do we recognize the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God and stop judging him to be like a Roman dictator and start judging him to be like Jesus revealed? And those who make the right judgment about God open their heart to him. And the Spirit is poured out. And they're transformed in their characters. They're healed in their minds. And they live out God's principles, bringing glory to God as they lighten the world with the final message. This is the final message of mercy that separates the people of God from the world. People of God are those who are like Jesus and have his law written upon their hearts. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Luke 2, 52. And it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And then the lesson states in the first paragraph, Jesus was the perfect human being and his growth compromised Excuse me. Comprised all basic dimensions of human existence, according to Luke two fifty two. Jesus grew in wisdom, mentality, stature, physically, uh, in favor with God spiritually, and man socially. So mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially, his mind was active and penetrating, and his thoughtful and with a thoughtfulness and wisdom beyond his years. Yet his character was beautiful, and it. In, a, in, a, in its symmetry, the powers of mind and body developed gradually in keeping with the laws of childhood. As a child, Jesus manifested a peculiar loveliness of disposition. His willing hands were ever ready to serve others. He manifested a patience that nothing could disturb and a truthfulness that would never sacrifice integrity. In principle, firm as a rock, his life revealed the grace of unselfish courtesy. How did Jesus grow as a human? Did he grow in a different way than the rest of us? No. -hmm. Or in the same way we grow. Let's consider the the different aspects of growth and what's necessary for healthy growth and and whether Jesus needed these and whether we need them. Let's look at the elements. the, The physical growth. What's necessary for physical growth? Nutrition. Food. Did Jesus have to eat? Yes. Yes. Is healthy food important for our growth and our health? With poor nutrition, we have impairment of physical health. And if we have poor nutrition and have poor physical health, that impairs the functioning of the brain, which undermines the the alacrity of the mind and and, uh, impairs our ability to regulate our mood, to concentrate, impairs our memory and neural development. And therefore, does poor nutrition not only impair physical growth, but undermine our spiritual growth as well? It does. What about exercise? The law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Physical development requires exercise. But exercise of the body also improves the brain development, increases uh, anti-inflammatory factors that protects the brain from oxidative stress, turns on proteins called neurotrophins that increase plasticity so your brain network expands and you can learn quicker and easier. You can adapt better. Endorphins and encephalins, which improve mood stability and help with resilience and stress management. Additionally, the circuits that initiate physical motor movement initiate thinking so we can think more quickly. And circuits that organize uh, the physical motor movements into smooth choreographed mo- motor movements organize our thoughts into organized thinking patterns. Did Jesus need to physically exercise to engage in physical activity to train his physical body and motor skills to learn how to do fine motor tasks in his carpentry, for instance. And did this help his mind work better? Well, yes, it did. Do we also have a responsibility to develop ourselves physically and keep ourselves in physical health? Yes. Yes. And what else is required in addition to nutrition and exercise? For physical growth, security and safety. Study done on Iraqi children growing up in the safe zones compared to the war zones found that those growing up in the safe zones were significantly and statistically taller and grew grew bigger than those who were growing up in the war zones. Children uh, and that and that affects us neurobiologically, neurochemically, food absorption, lots of things going on there. And children experience security and safety not primarily from government, but from their parents, from their home environment. If parents create a home in which children feel safe, then they thrive and do better physiologically as well as emotionally in other ways. Did Jesus need a home in which he was safe and not abused?
1: Yes, he did.
0: Can we choose to be godly parents and not exploit and abuse our children? Yes, we can. And we need to. And then what else is necessary for physical growth? Love. And you may remember the story, Frederick the Great, uh, one of the, uh, the um, kings of, uh, of Germany, Felt that uh, believed that the primary language that Adam and Eve spoke back in Eden was German, and he wanted to prove it. And so he had some some children that were born, and they were foundling or orphans, and they were given up. And he had them had them put it in a in a, in a daycare nursery type setting in which. Uh, the caregivers were instructed that they were not allowed to touch the children. They were, so they used, like, wooden instruments to, to to bathe them and change them and feed them, and they were not allowed to speak to them. Uh, he felt that if they grew, out, uh, grew up with no human contact and no human influence, that, that they would grow up and, and spontaneously speak German, and it would be proven that the original language was German that, that, uh, that Adam and Eve spoke, spoke. And you know the outcome of a study. All, all the babies died. Because physical growth requires love, contact, nurturance. And without that love and contact and nurturance, children don't thrive. They die. So our children need love as well. And Jesus needed love. He needed his mother's love. He needed her attention, her care. And it was important for his physical growth. Uh, we, we grow mentally. Mental growth uh, to grow in wisdom and, uh, and understanding. What's necessary? Well, first, nutrition and exercise and security and safety and love. But we also need uh, education. We need uh, environments where it's safe to ask questions, to contemplate, to challenge the orthodoxy. To, and we need access to sources of truth. To enlighten as we, we grow. So we need all of those things. Spiritual growth. We need a healthy body. We need a healthy mind. Uh, we need uh, the, a safe environment. We need love. We need a healthy education. We need access to sources of truth and scripture. We need typically someone to help us process through and discover these things. And we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And we need a relationship, personal, individual relationship with God. uh, A faith relationship, a trust relationship. And then we need to apply the truths that the Holy Spirit leads to us in practice to develop and grow spiritually. And then social relationships. We need a healthy mind, healthy body, healthy spirit. We need to be loved, and we need a love environment. We need a secure and safe environment. We need then to exercise the principles of healthy relationships in how we deal with others, that we govern ourselves and we leave other people free in how they govern themselves, including free to like us or not. Think about Jesus. Did Jesus govern himself well? Did he try to control what others thought of him? No. Did Jesus, did he give in to the, to the influence or the control of others? Let others direct what he did in governance of himself. No. Do you remember his brothers tried to influence some of his decisions and he resisted that, didn't give in. Jesus tolerated rejection. He would rather be rejected than to do what he believed and what, knew, what he knew was wrong. Healthy relationships require healthy people. And Jesus' relationship with Judas... Turned out, in betrayal, it broke down. That was not a healthy relationship. Did that mean Jesus failed in some way to be a healthy person in his relationship? No. You cannot have a healthy relationship with an unhealthy person. That doesn't mean a sinless person. A healthy person is a person who has the maturity to look in the mirror and own their own shortcomings, be corrected, and uh, repent, seek forgiveness, and with God's grace, improve and mature over time. That's a healthy person. Amen. An unhealthy person is the person who denies and distorts and blames and won't learn. It's never their fault. And they can repeat and solidify themselves in the dysfunctional patterns of living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes.
1: All right. Yep.
0: Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson. Uh, the first paragraph states, the dualistic theory of a mortal body and an immortal soul has generated various theories of the human body. For example, the ancient Greeks, Greek philosophers, or the ancient Greek philosophers, the human body was the prison of the soul, which was liberated by death. In an echo of this pagan concept, many Christians today believe that the body is the temporal housing of the immortal soul, which will be reintegrated with the body at resurrection, at the resurrection. By contrast, pantheists make the human body divine. They believe that God and the universe are all one and the same. For them, all things are God, and the human body is part of the one single integrated and universal divine substance. Surrounded by by conflicting theories on the subject, we must stand firm on what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of humanity. Do you agree with this paragraph in, 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 all, in all elements? Do you have some questions? Do you agree with this? <clears throat> Do you agree or disagree with the concept that the body is the temporal housing of an immortal soul? True or false?
1: false.
0: false. false. See my smile?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about for the righteous? For the saved, for those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, is the body, the temporal housing of an immortal soul for them? Yes or no?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Does the soul of the saved become immortal because it has received from Jesus the gift of eternal life Mm -hmm. while it's still in this mortal body?
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Sounds right. right. Say that again. Yeah. Yeah. Does
0: the soul of the saved, the person who accepts Jesus as their Savior, become immortal because they receive the gift of eternal life, not because they already possess it, but they receive the gift of eternal life so they become immortal while they're still in this mortal body? Well, if, you, if, you, if you're struggling with that, let, let me add a couple Bible texts to you. This is John 11, 25, and 26, Jesus speaking. This is what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? No. Yes. 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 Okay.
1: Isn't that yeah. what Jesus brings with him when
0: he comes, the souls of the saved? So you've already gone to another text that I'm going to read to you on Thessalonians that when Jesus returns, he brings with him the souls of the sleeping souls. They're in a state of sleep. But according to Jesus, even though they're asleep, they're not dead. So, my question, do those who believe in Jesus die or never die?
1: Their souls never die. Never
0: Definition never, 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 they never, of they never. Jesus said, this yeah. words are uh, even though he dies, uh, and whoever lives in, who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If they never die, does that mean they have already then received the gift of eternal life?
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. and
0: if they've already received the gift of eternal life from Jesus, does that mean then that this temporal body houses for them an immortal soul that will be returned to a new body at the resurrection?
1: Yes, yes. yes. yes.
0: Isn't that interesting? Jesus also said in Matthew ten twenty eight, do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Right. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow. So the soul doesn't die when the body dies. And then the Thessalonians text that we already referenced you know, God alone is immortal. The error here, as I see it, is not that this temporal body houses an immortal soul being made immortal from the gift of God for the righteous, that's not an error. The error is believing that we inherently possess immortality in and of ourself, and it doesn't matter whether we're reconciled to God or not, we have immortality. Another factor is that the definition of the word soul, is
1: it an independent uh, awareness uh, can it communicate? Is it in death? Uh, or is it something that is uh,
0: an energy, performance, giving life to other molecules? So that's a great question. And the, the, so the, Paul talks about he wants us to be sanctified, body, soul, and spirit in Thessalonians. And the Bible teaches that we have three parts, body, the physical matter, soul, which is the Greek psyche, from where we get psychiatry and psychology, means basically our, our unique individuality, our, our life experiences, memory, character traits, the, 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 uh, the, what makes you uniquely the person that you are, and, and then spirit, panuma, from where we get pneumonia or breath or breath of life, which would then be energy. But... That, in that context, is how I believe it's, it's used. But the word soul can also be used in a variety of different ways. It has different meanings, just like the word spirit. The word panuma in the Greek uh, is translated uh, as the way I've just described, and it means breath or breath of life. Uh, Jesus, when he died, gave up his spirit, it says his spirit, um, but sometimes that's translated ghost. He gave up the ghost, uh, or, and the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the Holy Ghost. So spirit can be translated ghost. Yeah. Also, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and he talks about the wind blowing wherever the wind blows, uh, the word used there is panuma, spirit. The spirit goes wherever the spirit goes. The, the wind blows wherever the wind blows. Uh, it can also mean a mythical creature. When Jesus was walking on the water, and the disciples looked, and they, th- and they th- thought it was a ghost. It was Jesus, but they thought it was a ghost, a disembodied spirit, a mythical creature. Um, that word there is panuma, uh, and it can mean go. So, so the word for for spirit can mean many things. It can also mean attitude. I am with you in spirit. It can mean the energy of our of our hearts desire. I am. I, Paul wrote, I, I am with you in spirit. He wasn't talking about uh, the. Uh, he was talking about his attitude and hearts energies were toward and for and with the good outcomes of the people he loved. That's his spirit, his, his life energy, his breath of life. My spirit is for you. Okay? And my goodwill is for you. That, that's what it means there. Soul can mean many things as well. Uh, there's the old SOS. You know, and dot, three dots, three dashes, three dots, an old Morris code SOS, save our souls. Okay? <laughs> and, and what people are wanting saved is their lives. When God breathed into man and he became a living soul, it can mean the whole person, the whole individual, the whole being. So soul can have more than one meaning, just like spirit can. So it's really important, and this is is normal for language. Words have different meanings depending on how they're used. We do this all the time. I like this example of the word in English called rendition. If you have two renditions of a song... That means they were played in different ways. Two versions, you might say. But rendition is also the, 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 the word that means when the CIA puts a black bag over your head and takes you to a black site and does a very rigorous interrogation of you, you, you're, you you're going through rendition. Okay? It, it has nothing to do with two different versions of a song or an art piece of art. And so the same word can mean quite different things depending on how it's used. And so um, you're right. We have to be careful with that word soul and how, it, and how it's used. And, and in our context, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. Or Paul's context, uh, three parts. Uh, what we understand is that consciousness, living, functioning human being requires all three parts. Body, yeah. physical matter, soul software, individuality, identity, and panuma, spirit, energy, breath of life. All three are required. Hi, hey, Tim. Yes. In 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul's describing
1: the second coming, and he says that that's when mortals shall take on immortality. So, right. it sounds to me like at the second coming is when we will become immortal.
0: So so that he's talking about physiology there yeah. he's talking about that that when we throw off this this so this mortal body, and that's what Jesus is talking about here when he when Jesus said um that even though he dies, he will live and um how, how did that text let me read it word for word um, he believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die okay um, so the the physical body dies. And the physical body decays, but the individuality doesn't die, it sleeps. And so Paul is talking there, if you actually look at the context of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, read the context. Over and over again, he talks about the different bodies. The stars have one kind of body. Animals have another kind of body. Uh, the sun has its own. The moon has its own kind of body. And, and this, this mortal will put on immortality, and this corruption will put on incorruption. It's talking about when, when, when our um, physical bodies are exchanged for the immortal body that will never decay and die. And that happens at the second coming. And this is important because I talk to patients with mental health problems all the time. And what we're promised here and now, here and now, in this mortal, corrupt, decaying, degrading, aging body, we are promised new hearts and right spirits. We are promised a a conversion, Mm. a recreation of heart and mind, the law written on the heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by the spirit. In other words, cleansing of our souls where we uh, partake of the divine nature, Peter said. And that partaking of the divine nature is the receiving of the gift of Jesus Christ, which he shares his immortality with us. That's what we can have now. But this mortal does not put on immortality and this corruption does not put on incorruption until, talking physiologically, uh, until the second coming. And so we can have right hearts recreated characters christ likeness while we still age and die and or suffer with with bipolar disorder or some other illness or disease that's part of the body that's a great question second paragraph says uh, both adam and eve were created in god's own image and likeness which was reflected not only in their character but also in their physical aspect Because that image was marred and even hidden by the presence of sin, the work of redemption is to restore human beings to their original condition, including their physical health, to the degree possible for beings unable to partake of the tree of life. If you think about Satan's goal for humankind, does Satan want to kill every human being? No! No. Think that through with me.
1: Seems He wants beings to worship him.
0: Just think about this. Does Satan actually prefer or want or have as a goal an earth devoid of all life where he reigns on an empty, lifeless planet? No. In fact, doesn't the Bible describe that as his prison for a thousand years in the future? Right.
1: But he knows. Okay.
0: No, he doesn't want to kill all humans. He does not. He wants to kill only the righteous, only those who won't acknowledge him and won't allow him to efface the image of God in them and put his image where God should be. He wants to sit enthroned in the spirit temple as the being adored, admired, worshipped, and whom we become like. And the Bible talks about how in the man of sin, the man of perdition sets himself up against everything that is called God and sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. This is his goal. He wants humans to live and Be the temple or the synagogue of Satan, as Revelation describes it, where we become satanic in character and adore him, even if we call him Jesus Christ.
1: But he knows that by causing man to sin, we are going to die. He knows that.
0: (laughs) Well, that the presumption that he knows that. There is the argument, and I've read it in various other places that he has the belief that God in mercy for human sake won't bring death about.
1: But he knows the Bible better than we do, so he knows what it says.
0: Yes, he does, but he still fights against it, doesn't he? <laughs> Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson, 1 Corinthians 2.16.
1: Tim? Yes. In answer to, well, not answer, but... To go along with Tina's, um, when we reject God, we harden our heart, and we don't have the ability to know what I don't know. Experience truth like he's deluding himself
0: because of right. sin. No, no, that's exactly right. And so Satan, Satan has destroyed the faculties that re- respond and recognize the truth. There's no question. And Satan's view is imposed and legal. He's the original legalist. Sin requires, uh, every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. In Satan's uh, worldview, um, the, de- the death is reaped as an infliction from God. The wicked who are lost in the end believe that same lie. So when they see Jesus coming, they're terrified of him. Uh, they see him as the-, the source of inflicted pain. They beg for the mountains to hide him because he's so scary. But But in fact... Um, he isn't the source of death. It's their own condition that causes this. But that's not where the wicked operate. The wicked operate on the power over others mindset. And you've seen this in the world today. If somebody is truly corrupt and truly deceitful and truly a cheat and truly a liar, how do they consider every other person functioning?
1: Same way. Same way.
0: Even if they're dealing with an honest person, they still view that honest person as going to lie and cheat and steal from them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so Satan, Satan's view is power over, and so his view, in my in my estimation, is that he completely um, is deluded himself in self delusion. Yeah. First Corinthians two sixteen. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What's it mean to have the mind of Christ? Does it mean that we surrender our minds to Christ, and therefore He takes control and He sits in the driver's seat and He makes the decisions for us? No. no. This is a common prayer for some. It's it's not it's not what what I think that metaphor would rightly teach. Uh, does it mean that we are to be good and obedient children of our Father in heaven, who and we wait for Jesus to tell us what to do? Uh, and not acting until we get a clear command from Jesus uh, and, ser- and seek Jesus out for every decision in life because we don't ever want to make a mistake and don't ever want to do anything wrong. So we seek him to tell us all the answers and we, and we uh, follow all his instructions and we never ask any questions. No. No. So in the morning, if it's raining, you have a, a a rain jacket. You also have an umbrella. You pray and ask Jesus to let you know whether you should wear the jacket or use the umbrella.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. no, it's
0: usually the times of despair. Or you, uh, it's, it's time to go to bed, and you ask Jesus whether he would have you brush your teeth tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is this the type of obedience? And, and and if Jesus gives you an indication, yes, press them, you are going to be obedient. You're going to do it, but you won't do it without instruction oh, wow. from Jesus. Is that what he wants? No. 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 That's a robot. <laughs> Does it mean we're to have our minds changed to love what he loves, value what he values, desire a world in which... The Father's will is done on earth as it is in heaven.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Practice the methods and principles that he practices. Have character that is built to look like his character. Uh, that we partake of the divine nature and we live out his law and how we govern ourselves and treat others. Is that what it means to have the mind of Christ? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a completely different thing, isn't it? Yeah. How is it possible for us to obtain the mind of Christ?
1: Through daily study and prayer, communion with him.
0: Can God use might and power to impose his mind upon us?
1: No. no, no can.
0: Can, he can. Well, he has the ability. But if he does that, will we still be ourselves? No. No, we'll just be a puppet in the hand of God. Without any individuality. To do that would destroy individuality of the person. So God won't do that. Can we develop the mind of Christ by using our own might and power. No. 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 Then if God is to achieve the restoration of the mind of Christ in us, and we want that, what's required? The more we observe
1: him and follow him, a heartfelt okay.
0: change. Okay. So, so you're describing one of the laws, the law of worship, by beholding we become changed. Okay. So you're harmony with God's laws. We need a new heart. Uh, We have to be and what and what brings us to repentance, the Bible says
1: the kindness
0: kindness of God the goodness of God so God reveals truth the Holy Spirit wins uh, convicts us of the truth and it's the kindness of God that leads us and then we voluntarily choose to open the heart and surrender to Him. And in that cooperative relationship, we ask for more enlightenment and more transformation of the desires. And as we are led step-by-step, idea-by-idea, concept-by-concept, truth-by-truth, to to ever-increasing understandings, and we choose and say yes to them, we're empowered by the Spirit to live out that truth, and we're led step-by-step, freely, voluntarily. But the Holy Spirit never takes charge of the choice, And never forces the will because to do so would destroy the individual instead of healing and saving the individual.
1: Amen.